Last week, uh, just to get everyone on the same page, last week we opened up with the reality to the, that, the, that Jesus or God actually looks for people who are after his heart. And we see this when Hanani, the, uh, the prophet, spoke to King Asa in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. He said, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout, throughout the earth so that he may support those whose heart is completely his. If you want the favor of God on your life, then your heart needs to be one that is completely his. We want to, um, we want to reap favor through just sowing money. Uh, that's not necessarily how we gain favor. Favor comes, remember, those who uh, his heart is completely his, those who uh, he wants to support. What that means is that when you have given your heart over to the Lord, he will endorse it in favor. He will endorse it through opening doors that no man can close and closing doors that no man can open. And that is just what happens when you look at someone's life and you're like, well, how are they getting what they are getting? It doesn't seem fair. Maybe it's because there is a heart that has been completely given over to God. And as a result, there's a favor on their life. And so God is looking for those types of people, people whose heart are completely his. And one of the ways in which we, uh, what we did is we looked at this after God's heart phrase and we broke it down. And one of the things that we concluded about that is that you know that you are after God's heart when you are a person who is chasing or pursuing God's heart above everything else in your life. The, the New Testament version of that thought is when Jesus in Matthew 6, says this, and notice the language in the Passion Translation. Remember, to be after God's heart is to make that the uh, top priority, the preeminent desire in your life. Notice what Jesus says. He says, so above all in that top priority, constantly chase after the realm of God's kingdom and the righteousness that proceeds from him. Then all these less important things will be given to you abundantly. You know what that last scripture speaks of? It speaks of favor being poured out on your life. That as you make seeking the heart of God the top thing, because it's not just about seeking the kingdom, it's about seeking the king of the kingdom. When people seek the kingdom and not the king, they want his hand, they don't want his face. They just want the benefits. And what you will find is that more often than not, the focus is on the, on the universal principles of God's word and not the heart behind God's word. See, and, and let me just be honest, we have Christian bookstores lined with principles where we have extracted universal truths that God will not turn his back on, like the principle of reaping and sowing. He will not violate that. That was established before the foundation of the world. But what ends up happening is we will have a shallow uh, Christian uh, people who extract the principles and their sole focus is, what can I do to, to get access to what is in God's hand rather than seeking his face and see that's what we see a lot of times is we see this this reality that there is a shallow shallow uh religion or shallowness to christianity when there is this desire to seek his hand and not necessarily his face and the second thing that we we discovered last week in this phrase after god's heart is we, we, we discovered that word constantly. That to be someone who is after God's heart means that it is a continuous and repeated thing. It's not a one-time effort. For example, when we look at any relationship, if the only time that your wife or your husband knows that you were constantly and repeatedly pursuing their heart was before you got married, that does not necessarily translate into being someone who is continuously, repeatedly going after their heart after you got married. It's not enough for Allison 
to be chased before we got married. Then when I put the ring on the finger, it's like, I get to relax. Are you chasing God's heart after you had the union of faith where you surrendered your life to Jesus and you believed in Jesus and you believed in the gospel? See, this is what we're talking about. To be a person after God's heart is not a one-time pursuit. It is as the verse expressed above. It is continuous and repeated. It's a frequent thing. That The heart of a person who is after God's heart makes that pursuit the legacy of their life. I don't know about you, but I want that to be my legacy. I want to be known as someone who is going after God's heart. But what is most important is this. I don't want to be known by you as someone who is after God's heart. I want to be known by God as someone after his heart. See, if I receive compliment after compliment after compliment, we're like, you know what, you're just an amazing husband to Allison, but, Al or, uh, but Allison doesn't feel that way. Then that invalidates what you think of me. I want to be known by God in God alone as someone that is after his heart. His opinion matters more to me than the opinions of other people. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. And so scripture says that God found that type of person in the person of King David. And where we concluded last week is we concluded in Acts chapter 13 verse 22, where Paul actually identifies David as this person. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to be running through a lot of scriptures, so I just hope you write down the references, go back and take a look at them later. I know you are a studious body, and so I'm grateful for that, but as we go, we're going to go quickly. Acts 13, 22, it says this, Paul is preaching to uh, a body of Jewish believers in a synagogue, and what he says is he says, after removing him, that is Saul, King Saul, God raised up David to be king. For God said of him, I have found in David. You know what that implies? It implies that he was searching. Now, the interesting thing about that is that 2 Chronicles 16, 9 that I re referenced before, where I talked about how Han and I was speaking to Asa, and he said, the Lord is looking to and fro throughout the earth, seeking a heart that is completely his. You know that was actually after David. And so what that means is that this is not a one-time search from God. This is, a, this is a consistent thing. He wants to see and know a people that are after his heart. And it, this scripture says that God found that in David. He says, I have found in David, son of Jesse, a man who always pursues. That's the continuous and repeated and will accomplish all that I have determined him to do. A couple things we see in this passage regarding be a person after God's heart. Number one, God described David as a person after God's heart because as we talked about early, it said David always pursued God's heart. That speaks of the consistent and the repeated thing. But second and more importantly, this is taking it a step further from last week. Second and more importantly, the scripture says that David didn't just always pursue, but that he took it one step further. It says that David pursued God's heart, and then he determined to do what he discovered in the heart. See, that's, that's where it goes further. It wasn't just about, I want to know God's heart. It was about, I want to know God's heart with the intent to determine to do what I discover in his heart. This speaks to the New Testament reality in, in James. Don't just be hearers, but be doers. Apply what you discover in the heart of God. As you repeatedly and consistently pursue God's heart, apply what you discover in your life. See, that's what we're seeing here in the life of David. And I think that's key when you are thinking about being a person after God's heart. Because in the, uh, in the mind of God, what will set you apart from everyone else as a person after his heart is not what you know, but what you do with what you know. See, I don't want to be someone that knows all of the scriptures, but doesn't live all the scriptures. 
I don't want to be that type of guy that's like, well, you know what the Bible says, but there's no fruit or evidence in my life. That's what that is talking about. What, God, what caused God to say of David that he was a person after his heart was not what he knew, but what he did with what he knew. So one of the questions that we need to consider this morning as we talk about what it means to be a person after God's heart is we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing with what we know of God's heart? How is that playing out in our life? How is that manifesting in our behavior, in our choices, in our decisions, in our actions, in, 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 our, in our mind? And so that's what separated David from everyone else. To be a person after God's heart means that you not only know, but you're doing things with what you discover. And here's the third and final thing when we look at what it means to be a person after God's heart, and it's this. It says to be a person after God's heart means not only do you pursue God's heart, and you're continuously and repeatedly doing that, not only do you purpose to do what you discover in God's heart, but more importantly, last and not least, to be a person after God's heart means this. It means through pursuing God's heart and purposing, purposing to do what you discover in God's heart, God then begins to take possession of your heart to where your heart is now his heart. Your desires now become his desires. Your will is his will. That is the ultimate goal of someone who is after God's heart. That God moves in, set up camp, and now your heart is literally occupied by him. And, and, and David, you actually see this in the life of David, that that was the desire of David. Your desires are his desires. Your will is his will. Paul actually talked about this in Galatians 2 verse 20. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine. For the anointed one, Jesus, lives his life through me. We live in union as one. To truly be a person after God's heart is to be a person whose heart has been taken over by God. It's like that song that we sing, Jesus, you have won me. What does that mean to you? See, that means that God has captivated and captured your heart, and now it's his domain. It's, it's his dominion. It's, it's the life we see that Jesus lived. No, no longer all about me, but I will lay down my desires and my will because your desires and your will are the preeminent thing in my heart. To truly be a person after God's heart is to be a person whose heart has been taken over by God and now your heart and his heart are indistinguishable. We see the indication of this in David's life in Psalm 25. Listen to this. He talks about this desire. In verse 4, he says this. This is a prayer of David. Lord, direct me throughout my journey so I can experience your plans for my life. See, that's, that's I want to know. I want to know what you're thinking. And then what I want to do is I actually want to do something with what I discover. He says, Lord, direct me throughout my journey so I can experience your plans for my life. Reveal the life paths that are pleasing to you. Escort me along the way. Take me by the hand and teach me. For you are the God of my increasing salvation. And watch this next part. I have wrapped my heart into yours. I've wrapped my heart into yours. I want my heart and your heart to be so knit together like when you tie your shoes and you got a note and you don't know where to just cut it off and start over. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever knotted your shoes together and you're trying to figure out how do I, how do I untangle this so that I can tie my shoes because I can't get my, my shoes back on or whatever. I got kids that do that and I've done that. That is what David, the picture that David's saying. He said, I want to be so knotted and knitted, knitted together, your heart and mine, that it is indistinguishable where it starts and where it begins. That's the heart of David here. It's interesting because you would think, like, where does that necessarily come from? 
Uh, this phrase, I have wrapped my heart into yours, that's not common in the other translations, but it actually is a more accurate picture of what David was saying. In the other translations, it says this, for you I wait all day. What's important to note is that that word wait in the Hebrew is the word kavah. And what it means is this, to tie together by twisting and entwining. That's why it says, I have wrapped my heart into yours. See, David wanted to live a life where he waited till he discovered it, till he knew what was on his heart and he discovered what was there so that he could do it so that his heart and, and, and God's heart were intertwined. They were twisted together and you could not separate the two. See, that's what it means to be someone who is after God's heart. It's God, I want to, I want my heart to beat with what is beating on your heart. It's, it's this, this, this idea that I don't want to just to know your heart and I don't want to just do it, but I actually want our hearts to be knitted together. And so one of the qualities that we can see when we look at David's life here uh, that shows us that God has taken over his heart is that when we consider the life of David, what we see is that David was humble. David was humble. He had humility of heart. Now, I know the topic of humility and being humble is a popular topic in church, but that's what we're going to spend the rest of the, the morning talking about. Because when you look at David's life, it is undeniable that you, do, that you, that you see this, this posture of humility and being humble all through the course of David's existence. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. What, what does it mean to have humility or be humble? Who can tell me what it means to have humility or be humble? Come on. Jesse. Have a servant's heart. Have a servant's heart. That's a manifestation of it, right? To have a servant's heart. Rick. Think of others more highly than myself. What else? What does it mean to have a heart of humility, to be humble? James. I didn't ask you to stand. I'm kidding. <laughs> he's standing up like a, he's still up like a politician. Well, thank you, town hall. Appreciate for being here. So. <laughs> That's so good. Let's just close in prayer. God, we just pray that all of us would be humble. <laughs> exactly. To all of the responses. Humility is the act of purposely lowering yourself. Purposefully lowering yourself. So that God is glorified as well as for the good of others. It is the purposeful lowering of yourself. Now, uh, you know, it, when I was listening to, and I was in worship, we, at the end, it talked about how the elders casted their crowns. And I thought about the reality that that is a picture of humility. Humility is the intentional laying down of your status or stature. It is, it is a lowering. Now, you cannot, Pastor Rick, you cannot think, higher of other people unless you lower yourself. That's right. it, it, it doesn't happen. You have to make an exchange. You have to. It's like when John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. I think actually I got the order the other way because when you actually look at scripture, I think he said, I must decrease so that he can increase. You cannot increase how you see other people unless you first decrease. It is the purposeful lowering of yourself. Now, this is so important for you to, to, to understand. Humility is not thinking low of yourself. 
It's, it's not actually a false humility or self-deprecation. Actually, that is actually often the cultural meaning of, of humility. Well, you know, man, you're so humble. Well, you know, I'm just disgusting. I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm pitiful. I'm just, I'm, that's not humility. That's actually self-deprecation. And actually, what that does it, 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 is it does not allow you to actually be humble because you will be so self-absorbed in your false humility that you'll never think beyond yourself. It's, it's deceptive. Self-deprecation is not humility. This is what humility is. Humility is actually having an accurate assessment of who you are before God and before man. It is being aware of your status before God and your status before man, of your stature before God and your stature before man. But what humility is, is it says, yes, I know who I am, but I'm going to lower myself in spite of that. I am not going to have a self-preservation of my reputation, of my status and stature before God and man. I am actually going to lower myself below that. I, I know who I am. Do you know who you are? Humility is the accurate assessment of who you are. You know who you are. And, and when, you, when you know who you are, you're not boasting. You just know where you are. You know your level. But when you practice humility, you lower yourself below the level on purpose so that God would be glorified and for the good of other people. That's what humility is. And God modeled this through Jesus when he came to earth. And Paul actually talks about it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. Are you with me this morning? Yeah. Listen, when worship brings a Selah, y'all get quiet. And it's okay. Okay? So I'm not but I just want to make sure you're with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 7, Paul actually talked about this picture, beautiful picture of humility, how Jesus personified it. In the Passion Translation, it says this, Be free from pride-filled opinions, for they will only harm your cherished unity. Don't allow, allow self-promotion to hide in your hearts, but in authentic humility, put others first, and view others as more important than yourself. You can't do that unless you lower yourself. You accomplish that by decreasing yourself. John uh, the Baptist in John 3, we know this, when he said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Verse 4, abandon every display of selfishness. Possess a greater concern for what matters to others instead of your own interests. That is all about, see, a person after God's own heart has a humility that says, God, I am more obsessed with the matters of your heart. You know where we see this in Scripture? When Jesus rebuked Peter. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And, and they said, you're the Messiah, whatever, whatever. And then what he did is he began to share the plan of God's will for Jesus' life. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to raise again. And rise again. And then, then what does Peter do? No. That's not what you're doing. He doesn't understand the heart of God because he is actually thinking about his own interests more than God's interests. And then what does Jesus do? He checks and corrects and rebukes Peter by, he, by saying this. The reason why you don't have a posture of humility in this situation is because you're considering your own interests more than God's interests. Yeah. And, and here's the problem. Every time that all we do is consider what's best for man, we will never operate in a posture of humility. Never. That's why polit politics is not the answer. Because you actually have to consider what does God want? What is on the interest on God's agenda? Not on what's going to, to help man out. It's lopsided. That's why it's not the solution. And so here we see that, that uh, Paul is addressing this humility of Jesus. He said, abandon every display of selfishness. Possess a greater concern for what matters to others instead of your own interests. Consider the example of Jesus, the anointed one, has set before us. Let his mindset become your motivation. 
He existed in the form of God, yet he gave no thought to seizing equality with God as his supreme prize. The footnote in this uh, translation actually says this, uh, that that phrase right there, he gave no thought to seizing equality uh, with God as his supreme uh, prize. It actually says, you could replace it with this, that Jesus gave no thought to exploiting his rightful position for his own benefit. Every time you're exploiting what is rightfully yours, you're not operating in humility, using it to your own advantage, taking advantage of other people because of your position. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. So humility is the intentional lowering of yourself to glorify God and for the good of others. And we can see that clearly demonstrated throughout the life of David. Now, I I just need to stop right here. David's life is a life worth exploring. David's life is a life worth discovering. Matter of fact, I think it's interesting because when you look at uh, the scope of Scripture, you will find that that David is actually written about second to Jesus alone. Sixty-six chapters are dedicated to David's life. He has written over 75 of the Psalms. Some say more in the anonymous ones. And so the Psalms are actually a backstage pass to to what David was like behind closed doors. He's mentioned 59 times in the New Testament. So you got Jesus, the top most written about. You got David at 66 chapters. You know who's in third place? Abraham and Joseph, 14 chapters. So his life is worth discovering. But I'm also mentioning that for the sake of this. I got two weeks on this. So there's no way. Matter of fact, I have been struggling because I got situation after situation, example, example, example. I've spent hours on these messages because there's no way that you can talk about one person's life in two weeks. And so give me grace, but I want to give you some interesting examples from the life of David that show that he was a man of humility because it's all about what you see in the details of his life. And so uh, let me give you four examples from David's life. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. If you're there, say, I'm there. Did you say that because you were looking at the screen or you actually opened up your Bible? (laughs) I'm there. (laughs) Matter of fact, let's just go for the sake of clarity. Uh, If I ever say that, you know, are you there? If you're looking at the screen instead of looking at your Bible, just say you're there instead of I'm there. (laughs) So that I know you're actually not looking at your Bible, you're looking at the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14 says this, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. You know, you, you always look at that scripture. Matter of fact, if you just looked at that passage of scripture, you'd be like, man, God is cruel and he's a tormentor. Like, what, what is the deal? Well, it's no different than Romans 1 when God says that he will give them over to their sin. It's consistent with scripture. You want to continue to buck God, he'll be like, have at it. Have it your way. And this is what he did in the life of Saul. It says, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord uh, now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be made well. Verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Now this verse, next verse uh, is, is key. It says this, then one of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. Verse 19, So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David, his son. So how does this demonstrate David's humility? 
Well, if you know the story, these verses actually come directly after something significant happened. Saul had the kingdom removed from his hand. God said, I have found a man who is after my heart, who will accomplish my will. He will do what I desire him to do. So he speaks to Samuel and he says, go to Jesse's house. For that, for that man is found at Jesse's house. Samuel shows up. He tells uh, Jesse, he says, bring out all of your sons. For one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. So Samuel is there. And uh, he, the first son comes out, Eliab. Eliab is the oldest one. He's got it all together. And God actually speaks to Samuel and says, this is not the man. He looks like he has it. But there's a different metric for people in God's eyes. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so he says, keep going. It's not Eliab. Then the next one comes out. Then the next one comes out. Then the next one comes out. There's a series of sons, and, and one after another, there's not, there, he's not there. And so God, Samuel says, do you have any others? David wasn't even considered a candidate in his own father's eyes to be king. And so he says, yeah, I got the runt taking the trash out. I'll go send for him. And David shows up. And Samuel speaks. God speaks through Samuel and says, this is the man. And he pours oil on his head. And then you know what David does? He goes back to the field to shepherd the flock. And what we just read is the indication that the promotion didn't go to David's head. He is coronated king. And then he's like, amazing. You guys done? Because I got some sheep that are wandering. What? Would you react the same way? Or would you be like, before I leave the house, somebody need to get the red carpet? Let's get the red carpet all the way to where King Saul is because we need to let King Saul know who's the new sheriff in town. Dar David is like, thanks, guys. Call me when it's my time. And heads back to the flock. Did that cracks me up, but it is, it is a perfect picture of the humility of David. David's heart was uncontaminated by the promotions that he had. Is your heart uncontaminated by the promotions in your life or the promotions that God hands you? Is it uncontaminated? Is it undefiled? Listen to me this morning. You want to know what promotion reveals? It reveals whether or not your heart is filled with humility or pride. Every time you get a promotion, it will put those things to the test. And what happens in your heart is an indication as, a, as to whether or not your heart is dominated by pride or humility. It will show you in your heart what is in the majority and what is in the minority. And David here has the oil poured on him. And then he's like, thanks guys. Samuel, that's great. I got to go. And he walks away by himself back to the field to shepherd the flock. It's amazing. David's heart was uncontaminated by his promotion. Every promotion you will get in life will promote whatever is in your heart. Every promotion you get in life will promote whatever is in your heart. And I want to be that type of person who is unfazed by promotion because I have a heart of humility to the Lord. If you want to know if you're a person after God's heart, then examine the condition of your heart after you get promoted in life. Remember what scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So David's heart was uncontaminated by his promotion. Number two, David demonstrated humility in embracing his role in God's plan. Uh, we see this in 
2 Samuel chapter 7. How many of you know that every one of us has a role to play in God's kingdom? But can I tell you, every one of our roles is not the most significant one. <laughs> we can have it go to our head like, I'm a pastor. You just volunteer on the greed team. Every single role is significant in the eyes of God. And David embraced his role even as king. Because we know this, that in every promotion, we have certain privileges that come in hand with those promotions. And there is a tendency when pride is the dominant in your heart to take advantage of those promotions to be able to use them for your benefit or to make yourself more significant or more successful. But we don't see that in the life of David. Let me tell you, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. See, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is this. How content are you with the level of significance your role has? How content are you, or is it just not enough? We see this in David's life. Look at Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Are you there? there. <laughs> You're there. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now it came about when the king lived in his house. This is David. And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. That the king said to Nathan, the prophet. Let me just stop here. Nathan, we see Nathan twice in Scripture. We see Nathan in this situation, and we see Nathan in the situation when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so what that tells me is that there was a humility. And in, can I say this? In both situations, Nathan comes to David with rebukes. Believe the prophets, and you will prosper. We got an upcoming class to be encouraged about the prophetic things that have been spoken over your life. Are you going to believe? Are you going to humble yourself to believe the prophets so that you will prosper? Or will you say, no, I got this. It's all good. That's the whole point. It's not to give you another meeting. It's to say, if this is God's heart for your life, don't elevate yourself above your word, but align yourself with the word. And here's David, from this moment, it could have gone to David's head. If he had an attitude of pride, when Nathan rebuked him, he would have said, find me another prophet. He could have killed him. But in both this situation and when he rebukes him to his face, he still keeps Nathan in his administration. That speaks powerfully to the fact, do you go around and find amen people? Or do you love people who are willing to tell you the truth about who you are? I don't want amen people in my life. Because I know Proverbs says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Well, what you're doing is great. They pat you on the back and you're on the road to destruction in your life. I want people in my life that will tell me the truth. And David kept Nathan around as, a, as a, uh, a balance when he was out of line. And we see that in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go. Do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Now, stop right there. Was David's desire bad? No. David had an amazing heart. How can I be in a house of cedar and the presence of God is in a tent? I want to go build a temple. I want to go build a place that is more amazing than this house of cedar that I am in for the Lord. So Nathan says, go and do whatever's in your heart. Then the next verse says that God speaks to Nathan. And he says this, but in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? Are you the one? Are you the one? 
And then it goes, goes fast forward. It's this whole uh, explanation of everything that Nathan had. And so when you read through it, you see that this is what Nathan shared with King David. And verse 17 says this. It says, in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. See, David had a good desire to build the temple. He had a good desire. But he was content to let it go because it wasn't God's heart. It wasn't God's heart for him. David, listen, David could have built the temple, but David stayed in his lane. I love that about David. David could have taken advantage of his position. Matter of fact, Nathan could have came back and said, God told me, I, I know I said do whatever is in your heart, but God told me you're not the one to build the temple. And David could have been like, I'm the king. You can't tell me that this is a bad idea. How is it bad that I actually want to build the temple for the Lord? But it wasn't what God wanted him to do. Are you content? Listen, are you content when God says no to your good ideas? Because that wasn't a bad idea. But just because it's good doesn't mean it's God. Just because it's good doesn't mean it's God. And David was willing to embrace the God ideas and lower himself and humble himself in the realm of the good ideas. Yeah, this is a good idea. But if God does it with no questions asked, so much of us, we have a posture of pride when God says no to our good idea and we want to know the answer. Why? Well, why not? And David says, I'm good. I trust you. Whatever you say, I'm good. He demonstrated humility in embracing his role in God's plan. Number three, David sustained his humility by never forgetting where he came from. If you want to sustain your humility, never forget where God brought you from and brought you out of. You know why? Let me just use this example. You know why Pastor Dwight brings, where, brings up where he got, came from all the time? He's sustaining humility. This boy from Brookside, he's just remembering where he came from. And it will sustain in all of what God is doing in your life, and it will sustain your posture of humility. Right after Nathan rebukes him, tells him about all this, I love what, David, what Scripture says. This next point is from the next Verse in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 18. Listen to this. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord. And he got on his knees and he complained about why God didn't let him build the temple. <laughs> he groaned and moaned. God, that prophet of yours is stupid. Who is he to speak to me and say that this is not your will? No, it says, David King, the king, went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? I love that, because in a point where David could have been taken over by his flesh, he lowers himself before the Lord and says, It's okay. It's okay. So what if I'm not the one to build your temple? I'm okay with that. I'm going to stay in my lane and I'm going to embrace my role. Love that about David. When you never forget where you came from, the things that God asks you to do are always an honor, not an obligation. Number four. This is the last one, and then we're going to close. David demonstrated humility, and this one's so big. He demonstrated humility by refusing to see, receive from men which should only be given to God alone. Mm. You, want to, you want to see if you're a person after God's own heart? Encourage people to not make you an idol or an icon in their life. I'll, we'll see it. 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. I was reading this and I was so gripped by this story that it, it just, it was amazing. This is a, a series from eight, verse 8 to, I believe, 36. It talks about the exploits of David's mighty men. And in the middle of it is this significant story in verse uh, 20, uh, 13. 
It says, then three of the 30 chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam. So this is when uh, David is on his, his, his run from Saul. So he's in a cave, and three of the 30 men came to him in the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistines were camping in the valley of the Rephaim. Verse 14, then David was in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines were in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. He was parched, thirsty in the cave. He's so dehydrated. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and they took it and brought it to David. Now, if it was me, I would say, thank God for you. You are an answer to prayer. But look what David does. They drew the water and they returned with it and they brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. And he said, be, uh, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should drink this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. This just blows my mind. Let me, let me read the note to you here from my Bible. David poured out the water as an offering to God because he was so moved by the sacrifice it represented. When Hebrews offer sacrifices, they never consume the blood. It represented life, and they poured it out before God. David would not drink this water that represented the lives of his soldiers. Instead, he offered it to God. Come on, that is so good. David was like, I refuse for you to do an offering that only God is worthy of. Do you want to be a God in your home? Do you want to be a God over your wife or over your husband? Do you want to be a God at your job? Are you expecting out of people to treat you like an idol or an icon? Remember Jesus said that the Pharisees did what? They lorded it over people. And here's David, the king. He could have sent them out and said, give me some water. But he was so in awe of their sacrifice, in his humility, he said, no, 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 no. You never risk your life for me. That is only dedicated and reserved for God alone. Therefore, I will not take that from you. That's amazing. It's a humility. It says, it's like when Peter when Cornelius comes and bows at Peter's feet and he says, get up. I am only a man just like you. That's what David did in this moment. So David's heart was uncontaminated by his promotion. David, I'm closing by the way. David demonstrated humility in embracing his role in God's plan. David sustained his humility by never forgetting where he came from. And lastly, David demonstrated humility by refusing to receive from men what should only be given to God. If we are not careful, we will want to be treated like God by somebody. And David, in his humility, refused to be esteemed by those men in a way that should only be reserved for God. Will you stand with me? Humility. If you're going to be a person after God's own heart, it's all about humility. When I started to read through First and Second Samuel uh, earlier this summer, and it was like a movie I didn't want to end because of just the amazingness of David's life. And so I went to First Chronicles and I read through First Chronicles, and I could not help have a song rise up in my spirit as I was reading through the life of David and this attitude of humility, and it's this song that so many of us know that's so famous from years ago, only a God like you is worthy of my praise, all my hope and strength to only the king of all kings. Do I bow my knee and sing, give my everything to only my maker, my father, my savior, redeemer, rewarder, rebuilder, Restore to only a God like you do I give my praise. This is the essence of a life of humility. This was the epitome of David's life, and that is what it looks like to be a person after God's heart. If you're going to be known by God, 
as a person after his heart, then it will be, in this, it will be seen in the humility that you display, display in life before God and before men. I want to be a person after God's heart. I want to lower myself the way that Jesus lowered himself. That is just yet one attribute that David demonstrated from his life about what it looks like to be a person after God's own heart. If that's your heart, will you just lift your hands up? I feel like the Lord is just saying, only you know, only he knows, and you know, the areas of your life where you have elevated yourself above others. So right now, God, you see those places. Lord, even in this moment, Father, I repent. Father, that in the places of my life where I have elevated myself, where I have demanded and I have expected, I have felt entitled to treatment, whether it be from you or from other people. So, God, I pray that you would not only humble me, but, Father, that you would help me to lower myself, to be a person of humility, Lord, no matter my status, no matter my stature before God and man. Father, I pray that we would be humble before you, God, and that our humility before you would be displayed in our humility before men. that we would be uncontaminated by promotion. Father, that we would embrace the role that we have in your plans, God. Father, we would not expect from others to be a God in their life, Lord. Lord, that we would sustain our humility by never forgetting where we came from. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we're going to talk about intimacy, worship, adoration in the life of David. We love you. We'll see you guys next week.